during the pandemic, my uh, bandmate Alan and I got a uh, studio here in Brooklyn. And over the last few years, we've been, we built it out. And uh, we also have a record label that is based out of here. Um, So my days are this sort of weird potpourri of, you know, studio and label stuff, listening to, you know, uh, label submissions and uh, talking about that kind of stuff with our, our label manager, CN. But then, uh, I do a lot of, you know, I'm always, always writing. That's, you know, my main, my main job. So I'm like, I don't know, yesterday I was, uh, spent half the day making, uh, scores for this musical that I'm working on. And then the other half listening to, uh, submissions for next year for the record label. So kind of every day is a little different. I was listening to an interview that you did a few years ago and you, you referred to the composition as a day job. <laughs> it's funny because I like sheer coincidence. I'm reading the, Phil, the uh, Philip Glass book that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, have you read that? I haven't, but I, I'm pretty familiar with his life story. <laughs> One of the things that I found hopeful in the book is that he was do he was doing like day job day jobs until he was like 41, driving cabs, yeah. putting up drywall, things like that. As far as day jobs go, you've got a pretty good one. Yeah, it's a. I mean, you know, I had briefly. I was really lucky with how it started because I think for my my maybe my junior and senior years of college, I was working while I was a student. I was working as a musical assistant for Nico Muley, who actually was the musical assistant for Philip Glass for a while. So it's kind of a small or you know easy connection there. But um, and so I was doing kind of two jobs at once, being a student and and kind of coming into the city when I could to run recording sessions and hacking my way through, you know, various making parts for things and, and, you know, just running, uh, sessions for him. And then I did that for him for about a year after graduation. And then in a very sort of like old fashioned way, San Fermin got picked up for a record deal, like off of our first show. So I kind of never had quite that, that, you know, putting up the drywall phase. And, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm doing a I'm doing a delayed version of that now doing all the sort of stuff with record label and studio maintenance and all these things that are much more like you know they have a kind of a set schedule. <laughs> That's also a pretty good day job to have is having yeah. to having to listen to artists all day. It's really nice and it puts you in this different mindset. Um I mean one of the reasons that we did the label was that I just felt like I was getting s- sort of like siloed and isolated as a musician and that seemed sort of counterintuitive to <laughs> the whole point of making music, which is a social event and, uh, you know, something that you share with people, it's about connecting. And I just felt like on tour, I was just me and my bandmates and against the world. And I didn't actually love that feeling because it felt so isolated. And so actually one of the nice things now is on the, on the label side is just, you know, being connected to a larger web of people and, and having a reason to uh, really actively engage with other people and and uh, and root for for other musicians. It's funny to describe um, being in a band as solitary. I guess you know relative to to these other connections, but it is it's certainly a theme that runs through a lot of what you do. I mean, one with the bands at certain points, the band has been you know double digits. The band <laughs> has been three to four ska bands in size. <laughs> I like measuring things in ska bands. That's <laughs> it good. Is unit, it is an unpopular unit of measurement in 2023. <laughs> the label's mission statement also seems to be entirely collaborative in a sense as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think partly because of my experience 
as a composer, which is, I feel like being a composer for uh, contemporary classical ensembles and, you know, orchestras and and whatever, uh, there's this really weird divide between the writing process, the generation of the, of the material and then the performance there's, and sometimes there's years between when you write it and when it happens. And there's this kind of artificial, uh, thing going on. There's even a weird power dynamic where you come in to, to, you know, say you give an orchestra your score and there's this, on the one hand, you're sort of the dictator. On the other hand, they're giving you 35 minutes during their rehearsal. It's just a weird thing. Um, and so I don't love that dynamic of, of separation. It doesn't feel right. And it never did. And so the label, I think, is kind of my way to actively push against that kind of the, the siloing of musicians and to actively promote the sort of cross collaborative community. What form does that take, though, you know, in, in terms of the actual label? And, and what does collaboration look like? It, it depends. I mean, during the during the pandemic, you know, like one of the projects we did was San Fermin did this collaborative EP. And it was like six tracks with just friends of ours and musicians that I admire. And that was, you know, as many people's experience during the pandemic, that was very... Um, uh, it was collaborative while being distanced. So like there was, you know, that was, that was a Dropbox album. You know, there's a lot of like, Hey, check this out. That that was your postal service record. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, you know, so that's, that was, that's kind of one way, but now that things are more or less back to normal. Um, we have this recording studio in the front of the building here and every day there's someone new in there. And, you know, usually it's just they're doing their thing. They're working with Alan, uh, you know, our singer, who's also he's a producer on as his day job. He, he produces albums. And so sometimes they're doing that. Sometimes it's someone recording something for me. A lot of times it's just people in there doing their own thing. And there's just something nice that comes from popping your head in, saying, hey, you know, kind of listening um, that uh, I find I, you know, when I was writing in my basement for eight years, I was not getting that. And so I would find myself in these much more sort of like uh, isolated kind of holes. Whereas now I feel, you know, more connected to what's, uh, what's going on around me. What does it take in 2023 to launch a record label? I know, I know like you're working with Orchard, <laughs> which is pretty good as yeah. far as distributors yeah. go, but I just, I don't even know, you know, aside from some familiar names, I, I don't know what, mm-hmm. what do record labels do these days? <laughs> is that a fair question that's <laughs> a very fair question well you know i i have to say i've never really wanted to be on the record label side of the exchange right like i i've had you know our first couple records came out with downtown and then we worked with interscope and then we were with sony and so i've done the major label thing and you know a lot of really wonderful people in those spaces a lot of people who listen to music and care and you're you know they've brought you in for a reason um, but I always felt like there was this real, uh, you know, you sort of show up in this um, conference room. And I remember I went into uh, I went into the meeting with Sony, this was maybe three or four years ago, and they said, who's your audience? And I was like, I don't know, you tell me. And they said, well, it's your job to figure that out. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and, from, uh, and then someone sort of raised their hand and said, well, I think it's six-figure hipsters. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> so I think there was like – there's a, this kind of weird, weird sort of corporate speak that happens, um, uh, you know, in those spaces that I really didn't uh, – I just don't feel like it's very connected to my feeling of what I'm actually doing. So to answer your question on what, what labels do – 
<laughs> I think like uh, what I want ours to do is just to kind of be transparent and to be as little of a presence as possible um, in that way with artists. Basically, you know, because we have a studio, Better Company Studios that we run here, like it's more we're trying to be a resource. So we're saying, hey, you know, you have a record. Great. Come make it here. Like, that's awesome. We love that. If you want to work with me as an arranger or what, or, you know, whatever, if you want to work with Alan as a producer, that's great. If not, that's also great. Uh, and then, you know, and then we'll, we'll sort of shepherd it out into the world. And what that looks like is basically hiring a really amazing Australian label, label manager named CN, uh, who, you know, she's our sort of our everything. Um, and she, she has this sort of relationship with the distributor and then she kind of, basically is a storyteller to them she says hey this is why you should care about this project that we just signed here is the story of them and you know and here's the here's the music but that part i am much less involved with probably for the better for everyone (laughs) i can't get over the phrase six-figure hipsters i mean it it, it makes (laughs) it makes sense it's It's obvious it's obvious like on the face of it what that means and it really is it's kind of like the you know the 20s version of yuppie basically yeah right? is that it it really set a weird tone for that whole meeting i gotta say because i was you know looking around the room trying to say like okay who here is a six-figure hipster what you know what does that mean um and also i don't know i it's it's never nice to feel um kind of uh pushed into a particular pigeonholed thing. yeah 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 I mean, some of my best friends are six-figured hipsters, so I, you know, I can't <laughs> say too many terrible things about them. So, so what was the, um, I, 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 what was the impulse to self-release this time out? Well, because we had this label now, and so we're, you know, we've been working on it for the last three years. It was really our pandemic project because we were on the on tour, San Fermín. So we were signed in two thousand and. 12 we start we put out our first record in 13 and we basically were on the road from 13 to 19 and i was sort of just you know i was just uh juggling between tours i was writing you know music for ensembles and things like that and ballets and then i was just that was my life for six years solid was tour 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 album cycle and then like pieces in between and you know and when the pandemic hit i mean it was horrible for so many reasons but one thing that was kind of um, nice about it, I suppose, in a weird way, was just that Alan and I had a moment to be like, okay, what is it that we want to uh, do now? You know, we've been we've been killing ourselves physically. I mean, my my I have back problems, like you know, probably more emotional problems than I than I wish to to uh, you know talk about on a podcast. Well. And, yeah, exactly. You know, and like yeah, it's, going on tour is this sort of like extended um, adolescence in a lot of ways, right? You're sort of running away from something or running to something but also running away from it and anyway you know so we uh um uh, when we decided to make the label you know i thought maybe in five years it'd be nice for uh, this to be a place that has enough sort of resources and uh connections for us to put a san fermin album out through it and then we really lucked out with some some of the people that we hired we have you know two employees here and then we have the whole Orchard team, which is like, you know, 30 people that we work with there. And so Alan and I had a conversation about it about a year ago after I had written this record, this new one. And uh, he was like, we would be crazy not to put it out through our own label here. Like, you know, it's we have we have everything we need. And also, you know, why not uh, own the masters? <laughs> so no, I don't want to get like, you know, too 
in the weeds with the industry stuff, but looking looking at the band's albums, so the first two on Downtown and then Interscope and then Sony. Mm-hmm. Were the were the were the were the Interscope and Sony records, or was the was the Sony record like a one record? It was a one record deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, so our first deal was with Downtown Records, and that deal actually basically took us all the way through that Interscope deal. And for people who uh, are interested in, you know, uh, music music industry biz stuff basically the it looked like a like a two album deal and then it sort of ended up being secretly a three album deal where uh where we were putting our second album out and the label uh, downtown called us and said hey we want your we want an option for your third um and the implication was if we don't get that um we're not going to prioritize this release you were extorted a little bit there it sounds like yeah i mean you know i i have to say you know on the on the on the scale of artists who have had bad experiences with labels i i count myself very lucky and honestly they took a chance on us like you know josh deutsch who who ran downtown you know he came to a show one show of us at pianos where there was 15 of us on stage and oh at piano so that's like that that was uh i'm sorry i keep going back to the scob no measurement, okay. but there was that old yeah. there's that old onion headline that w- it was a scob band outnumbers audience <laughs> <laughs> pianos is not a large space no, it's very small. And we had, I mean, I had an orchestral bass drum on that stage. It was so silly. And, you know, and I have to give Josh credit. Like, he came, he saw that show, which by all accounts was, you know, chaotic. And also, um, uh, there was a long distance between that and being a touring band, and he took a chance on it. So, you know, I was, I think there was a little bit of a gentle... Um, you know, uh, extortion, as you say, like uh, to, to, on that third one. But honestly, I'm not, I don't hold any, it's, it's, I wouldn't have a career if they, if they hadn't taken a swing on us. So, but anyway, you know, uh, through that whole process and then, and then we, we, the first time we actually got to sign a deal, it was with Sony after that first one. Um, and that was just like a one-off deal with them where, you know, they, um, I had already made the record and then they, you know, came in and, and sort of bought it. You only wanted a one album deal though. It sounds like, so you had the freedom to do whatever you wanted with the next one. Yeah. And actually during that process, um, the, you know, the, the orchard is owned by Sony and that's how we were connected to the orchard. And that's how we have our, our own little label there. So it's, there's a lot to say about the music industry. It's a pretty whack, wacky, like fucked up place to be honest. Um, and there's a lot of really bad stuff in it, but I am in a slightly better place now about all of it, uh, feeling like a little... Oh, it's nice to have the, a little more uh, autonomy. <laughs> Again, just looking at this, the release date for, I think, the second part was mm. the end of March 2020. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, my God. What a bad, bad time to put a record out. <laughs> i mean i'm sure you had tours planned and how did that all go down yeah yeah it was all canceled as you can imagine um you know and even putting that out it was what it was like end of march 2020 was when the second half of our uh last album the cormorant came out and uh yeah i i mean i remember even like posting about it i felt like i was apologizing it was like hope this email finds you well (laughs) you know (laughs) like that kind of like uh in this our time of need here comes eight songs that you don't need kind of thing uh i'm sure that you had a similar experience i mean i like i i was dealing with other health problems and a lot of other stuff at the same time Mm -hmm. and i know that for me music played a big part in keeping me sane yeah 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean, there was talk about a a phrase that um, really cuts you down to size. The you know the uh, or when everyone was talking about essential workers, which is you know it was really like it was really illuminating. It's like wow, yeah, there are people who society needs, like truly needs, and then there's like me and all my friends who are just you know the frosting on the cake um and uh i thought that, that was very centering to be like okay or, or I, I should say um grounding to realize what a privilege it is to be a musician um and that everything else has to be working in order for us to you know do what we do but at the same time i did think over the course of the pandemic it was nice to remember that yeah, that uh, that the arts are kind of like a really it's a thing that matters to a lot of people. And, and there was a, a real call for live music again. And um, I don't know, it was just I don't I don't take it in, any of it for granted anymore. The essential worker thing, I think, for me, what it really put into perspective is how poorly we treat specifically the people that yes. were now that were like, you know, there, there was a period. Uh, so we're both in New York. There was that. Yeah time you know at like seven o'clock every night where people would go and applaud which you know nice right but like is that helping i don't know maybe that's the uh that's the like um you know that's the the spotify royalties of uh of actually showing appreciation (laughs) and that god that's that's gonna get real bad next year yeah 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 um i assume you're above that what that threshold but like really telling something like two-thirds of their catalog to go fuck themselves basically yeah it's um it's not a model that i understand yeah (laughs) i mean i understand it i understand it from the standpoint that it makes spotify a lot of money but and that they can get away with it but yeah yeah that's right for sure again obviously you you enjoy your your day jobs but if you if you really wanted to just pursue the band full-time like Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's something that you could even do at, at the level that you're at. Yeah, it's well, it's interesting because basically the version of that 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 works is oh, tour for 200 days a year or 180 days a year, which we kind of did through like 15, 16, 17, and it was really bad. Like it was, I mean, there were some of the best years of my life, but everyone in the band I think could attest that you know, I mean, yeah, I think 2015 we probably played 100 and. 20 shows and we you know we did a big opening thing doing stadiums opening with Alt J we did three headline tours you know we did three nights at Bowery Ballroom it was like a, a success of a year by all metrics except for financial where you know we basically you know we're we're playing every night and feeling great about it and then at the end of the year I think the band members like I mean no one made money at all like people were really in the red um, from that whole thing and uh yeah so it's it's really i think being a musician in, in this day and age unless you're above a, a pretty pretty high threshold has to do with um versatility and you know having sort of multiple ways to uh to make it work and uh, honestly it's 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 a constant um balancing act so is there like a pragmatic reason behind like scaling down to the relatively small number of eight people <laughs> relatively small um, yeah, I mean, basically, that was really a long time ago. It, you know, so we did the the in 2013, when I recorded the first album, there was 20 something musicians on it. Um, and then when we did that show at Pianos, I think there was maybe 13 or 14. And then when I went into Josh Deutsch's office at downtown, he said, like, hey, we don't sign acts that don't tour, you know, you need to tour, which is not something I was even thinking about. I was thinking about it as like a 
you know, an album, an art project, like just a thing that I wanted to do. And so at that point, I uh, kind of took a look at the scores and thought, what, what can we get rid of here? And got it down to the still, I would say, extremely um, unmanageable number of eight people. But, uh, you know, it was um, that that was uh, sustainable. At, if we, you know, if we played a lot of shows, it worked. What does touring look like for the band these days? Yeah, well, we're about to. So we have a tour happening in um, uh, starting in March and ending in June. That's a pretty good run. Yeah, yeah. There's some, it's some off and ons now because people have gotten a little, you know, we're in our mid 30s and uh, I think people don't want to kill themselves quite in the same way. So we take a couple of weeks here and there. And day jobs and, you know, and, and families and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a couple, yeah, we, our, our guitarists, um, you know, both have kids and, and all that. So, yeah, so we, it, it, you know, we, we all pile in a, in a sprinter and we, uh, you know, we go from place to place. I mean, I think the, the thing that is so crazy about it is that, um, you know, for one hour a day when you're on stage, you feel like better than anything. I mean, I really think that the, performing with a band of people who you love, you know, it feels like religion. It's like, uh, it's like, it's like the most connected that I've felt to people is being on stage. And then for 23 hours a day, you feel like, uh, you know, it's like a bad day in LaGuardia, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's waiting, waiting for hours and, and uh, eating junk and that kind of thing. Props to LaGuardia people, because it, it's <laughs> actually a nice airport now. <laughs> that's be, true. They've, yeah, they've, they've, they've one of the up, worst uh, in the country, again. and it's pretty nice now. Yeah, that's, that's true, actually. Yeah. What does it mean to conceptualize a band as an art project? Well, you know, so my, my background of, is, is that, I mean, I um, have always had, like in high school, I had rock bands that I played in, and then I, I played classical piano. And then when I went to college, I had a rock band I played in, and then I, I, was, I studied composition. And so I always had these sort of like two streams of what I do. My, my family are all visual artists. Um, they're all from like the art world. And so I always kind of thought of them as sort of different. And then, and I think there's a, there's a li- there was a little bit of an idea of like, they're sort of going for different things. Like there was, um, you know, when I was in bands and high school and in college, I was, you know, it was about playing battle, the bands and like having, having, fun there was a certain social currency to it and it was just fun to do whereas the classical music i just i love notes like i love pushing notes around i love creating these sort of networks of meanings you know that these sort of syntaxes like these languages that you that you create um as a composer and that feels um really exciting i mean it's like a sudoku that never ends in the best possible way and so i had always sort of thought of those two things as separate and when i did the first San Fermin album, I, it was the first time that I figured out how to sort of combine those two things and realized that actually like, it's like if you're starting a restaurant, you know, it's, it's like you want the restaurant, if you're the, you're the head chef, you want it to, you want the restaurant to show, um, you know, some kind of a, whatever your, whatever your history is, like whatever, the, wherever you come from, whatever your, your, and I kind of come from these two different places and I figured out how to kind of combine those. But it's, you know, it's led to some funny uh, situations where, you know, I'm, you know, we're doing shows, playing with orchestras and stuff like that, and then then suddenly you're on the, the stage at Lollapalooza and you're trying to convince, you know, the, the kids in the back of the crowd who are, you know, wasted that they should stay and and listen to your, you know, 
your your music so those are just very different audiences and so you have to kind of toggle your brain a little bit not just a dichotomy between um the composition and the band but almost a dichotomy within the band itself yeah totally and you know and and within from from song to song i think that we've had over the years we've had um both one of the nice things and also one of the difficult things about this band has been that no one, you, you don't quite know what you're going to get from place to, from song to song. There's, you know, on our first album or our third album or whatever, you know, there's like, I mean, just to, just to take the first album, since that was the sort of the, what we were talking about, like there's, you know, we had the song Sunsick, which was like XM radio and had a whole sort of like radio thing. And, and then like half the tracks are interludes with just, you know, new music string writing. And I, I think that people uh, who don't know the band very well are like, what the hell's going on? And so over the years, as my career has kind of um, opened up, I think I've gotten a little bit, um, I'm, I'm happier to kind of find each, you know, put each thing in its right place um, and sort of not, every album doesn't have to contain everything. It can be a little bit more focused. You were shoehorning things in a bit because it was something that you knew you could do. It's something you knew you were good at. Yeah. And there's, I mean, you know, there's probably some ego in that. I think like I was, you know, there was a little like fancy footwork kind of vibes in those early albums where it was like, I'm not just a rocker. I, yeah. Hey, Ma, yeah. look at me, you know, and I don't sing, right. Which I think is a really important, um, a strange distinction for us between us and other bands is like, there's not, I mean, I heard you talking to Kristen Hirsch, you know, who I, I love and she was talking about how songwriters are always pregnant, right. There's like this, this kind of like this idea of, um, that you're always sort of like have this story that you need to tell, but you're literally singing it. Composers, I think there's a little bit of a different thing where uh, you turn on the tap, you know, and you sort of fill up the glass and then you turn off the tap and you can kind of think about it differently. And I am squarely in between those two because I can do both things. But when I'm songwriting, it takes a lot more out of me emotionally. And so I have to kind of like, um, set this the, the time sort of uh, separate for those for those when I'm going to write an album I'm like okay here we go like the next two months are going to suck <laughs> you know <laughs> and I and I really have to sort of like de- delve down into what's actually going on in my uh, in my my emotional world seems to be more the case on this record perhaps than any other one before it yeah yeah well you know breakups man they're tough <laughs> for sure and and you you know you had two in quick succession which really yeah makes it hard to process both of them i think i was a real unreliable narrator for a little while you know um i i don't know i guess i hadn't really had that experience of such intense self-doubt about what was actually happening like what my what uh like because i could just convince myself um from day to day of just vastly different realities in terms of who you were in the relationship yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or what, what was happening in my life, like if it was a good thing, if it was a bad thing, if I was kind of flying off the handle or if I was actually growing. <laughs> and it was probably some combination of both, right? Um, but it was a real reminder of, honestly, I mean, I think the takeaway from the whole thing was gratitude for the community of people around me who, you know, who I leaned on in, in ways that I, you know, I think back on it. I'm like, Jesus, I, uh, I, I hope, I hope, you know, I can only be so lucky to have friends like that for my life. Um, and one of them of course is Alan, who's the singer of the band and he produced this album and God, that guy, he, he, uh, he really 
he he stepped up during a, a difficult time in terms of uh, helping you get your thoughts together or helping you actually like make art from these horrible things yes and yes and i mean it was uh he was really and he brought some humor to the whole thing too um you know i was having like almost sort of like a kind of like dissociative episodes um and and then you know i like i remember i came in one day to the studio and i was like um you know, I finally felt joy for the first time ever yesterday. And he just like literally laughed for five minutes at me. You know, he was like, you stupid idiot. Uh, you know, and I think there's something there's something funny about um, someone going through it where it's like it both feels really real and melodramatic. Uh, and also, you know, it, literally everyone goes through this all the time. I mean, the, you know, the dude at your bodega or the dude on the corner or the person that you, you know, wherever get your coffee from, like maybe they're going through that today. And I think there's kind of a... Um, a, sur- a, f- a humor and a surreality to the fact that both it feels like this kind of end of the world mental health crisis and also it's like hey you know you know what uh you know what everyone goes through all the time is this kind of upheaval and growth growth and you know if i take away from anything from the whole thing it was gratitude for for yeah the people around me and also um Life is uh, constantly throwing you curveballs and you just have to be able to grow with it. It is both the most personal thing that happens to you and the most universal at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think that was the takeaway for this one where it was like, hey, you know, I went through a very relatable couple, you know, a few months um, or half a year or whatever. And uh, maybe don't worry about dressing it up too much. Just just try to be a good observer of it and put that into words that are relatable for people and, and, you know, let, let that do the talking. It's also a funny thing in life that sometimes the best advice you can get from somebody is somebody who knows you really well telling you that you're a dumbass, like how useful, <laughs> yeah, you know, that your head's up your own ass or that, you know, you're, you know, that, that, that you have like no, no real context for this thing as you're going through it. Totally. I mean, there's nothing worse than like a self-important, uh, you know, like I, I think it's, it's so easy to get caught up in the sort of narrative of your own nonsense. And like, I think a, a really important part of a good friend is someone who can kind of just undercut it and say, Hey, you know, you know, this is a, I'm, 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 I'm sorry that you're having a tough time. I'm glad that you're growing and also i'm laughing at you <laughs> it's like kind of nice actually you said you're having like I, I don't know exactly what phrase you use but almost like borderline dissociative episodes like how does that feel like how did that manifest itself i just you know i, I i'm i without making it too anything more than it was i just think i you know i would just be sitting at my computer and suddenly feel like everything just like would go sort of shiny and weird, um, you know, or would just have these sort of moments of like feeling like really, really light. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think that that's, um, I mean, I've, I've dealt with anxiety for my, my whole life. So, you know, I, I couldn't have been, it couldn't have been a helpful thing at that point. Um, but, uh, I think also there's just, there are so many little markers all around you that are kind of surreal that you, you have a hard time, you know, finding handholds, right? Like, going back to my apartment and exactly half of everything is gone. You know, half the books of the shelf are gone, you know, and the couch is gone and, and stuff like that. And so there's this kind of dream like logic that seems to kind of kick in during that time. Um, 
where you know you just you feel like you have half the handholds that you normally do on a day-to-day basis it's a good way of putting it and i I guess the the context that's important here is that you the two of you were living together and that it was what like a 10 year long relationship so it it was yeah i mean it, it feels surreal because all of a sudden like your life is markedly different yeah yeah and you know and um i I I've always had a tough time. Uh, or I guess I don't. I'm not the kind of songwriter generally who wants to take something directly from my life and just pop it on the page. The sort of like um, diary kind of like so there are people who are just so good at that. Like you know the, the Liz Fairs or the honestly the Kristen Hirsches or the, you know the, I mean there's just so many people who can do that um, really well. But like my, I think my diary entries are really embarrassing probably. So I just don't. I, I've always, over the por- uh, course of my career, have filtered through um, uh, filtered through characters or literary references or films, and and I, you know, and I, I with this album, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't want to do, I didn't want it to feel confessional in that way, but um, either, but I, but I didn't want to be adding artifice to something that felt raw, so it just. Um, a big part of the experience was working with Alan and with Claire, our, our other singer, and basically saying like, hey, here's this thing, you know, and then finding the section of the Venn diagram where, you know, my like lived, uh, whatever my experience was, c- could kind of overlap with something that they could find their way into. And that, you know, I think that during that process, there was a lot of um, negotiation, uh, probably for the better. So it's really, in a sense, it's about it's important for them to find their emotional connection to the oh, songs yeah. that you're writing. Yeah, they have to. Cause you know, I think especially in my, in this, in this particular genre, the sort of like song indie sort of whatever songwriter world, uh, so much of, um, the way that people interact with it is, uh, it's like, you know, if you listen to a, you know, if you listen to a Sufjan song, it's like, he's talking to you, you know, it's like, if you, it's, it's, it's doesn't have that kind of remove that, like the, classical world has where you know you go see when you know a shostakovich uh you know piece in it, but it's he's not sitting in the room with you you know or it's bach and it's somebody from hundreds of years ago exactly yeah right so so i think that but i'm i uh my impulse to write has always been to bring people in closer to to me um you know i think like I often feel kind of lonely. I have kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a constant companion for me and the process of bringing people into my experience, that connection of writing and then having the, the, um, the connection between the the writing and the performing, that's like, you know, amazing. That's like where the magic happens and where I feel really connected. Um, and so for this kind of writing, um, it has to feel like it's coming from Alan or it's coming from Claire. Because if it doesn't, it's like, first of all, I failed as a songwriter. And second of all, I think people just don't buy it. You know, um, it's just, it's just, uh, it's got to be personal. What's that negotiation process like? <laughs> Very complicated. Or no, I should say textured. Um, you know, uh, yeah, layered. Yeah, I, you know, Alan and I, we've been Alan and I, we've been doing this since we were 15 or 16 and in every sort of 
uh, iteration. Like he used to write songs that I would produce when I, when we were teenagers. And then, uh, and then I wrote songs that, you know, and now I write songs that he produces. And, you know, so we've had this kind of long, uh, collaborative relationship that, uh, and we're also, I mean, he's my best friend. So we have these, these kind of, this kind of lived, um, shared biography almost uh like oh yeah like that time that we were wherever on tour but also that time that we played in a basketball camp when we were 15 like you know there's just these this sort of and so i think he's pretty good at sniffing out where it doesn't feel real i think he's really good at seeing when i'm trying to get to uh, in my head about it or, or fancy with it. And he's really good at undercutting that. And he's all about simpler language and he's about, um, sort of like delivering the, the, you know, the kind of the punch you in the gut line, but in a way that feels uh, plain rather than uh highfalutin. Um, and that's really, really helpful for me particularly. And, uh, you know, and I think he's also thinking about how is he going to perform it? And I think that's where his, you know, the sort of the character of his songs comes from because we have this shared section of our Venn diagram, but then also there's a whole part of me that I think he doesn't really relate to or want to, you know, sing. And so that's where uh, Claire comes in and, you know, I, and that's, uh, you know, she, she comes from a much more, like she comes from a theater background. She understands how to take a text and find her way into it. And also I think generally the songs that I've written for the female voice channel a little bit more of that anxiety and a little more of the sort of panic fight or flight thing that I have dealt with for a lot of my life. Um, and she's really good at, uh, at, at, uh, finding her way into that. Like, I think she can relate. The thing that struck me the first time I heard his voice is, how much he reminds me of Bill Callahan. I don't know if that's <laughs> yeah, like, totally. I, I know it's something you heard a lot, but, but it does. Oh yeah. He's, I mean, love yeah, him. I mean, there's something about his voice and, and the way he sings that, that is, or, or like David Berman or, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it's, it's very raw and it's, and it's, and it's very immediate. Yeah. And you know, he's, uh, I mean, Bill Callahan's a great example. I, I, I mean, I feel like, um, whether or not he's, trying to sound that way there's something about that voice that is reassuring and kind of caretaking almost like there's a kind of a kind of a it'll pass kind of feeling to a lot of that and you know alan i think is very comfortable in that role both in his life and in uh as a singer and so generally the songs that i end up writing for alan um take on a little bit of that character. It's clear in during the writing process who is going to sing them ultimately. Up until this album, yeah. Um, I always was like very, and for the first few, I was like really, you know, delineated with it where I would, you know, I write everything out as a score or at least historically I have. Um, and so I would come in to the recording sessions like in, you know, uh, in the studio and I would have it notated. Um, I mean, Alan doesn't really read music, um, and so the, the 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 vocal stuff would be a little bit like we would kind of figure it out in the room a little more, but um, oh yeah, like it was very almost like sort of operatic in terms of the back and forth. But this album, uh, you know, the challenge that that he set for me, which I really enjoyed, was write everything at the piano. Don't think about arrangements. Don't think about 
album order, like treat each song like it's its own thing. And and let's figure out who sings it later. And that was like really new for me. It's liberating in a sense of not, you know, as somebody who, again, this is something that we share, but as somebody with a lot of anxiety of not having to worry about that and just letting the music do its thing, what it needs to do at that point in the process. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, uh, I actually think that the thing that was the most liberating about it was you know, as uh, you know, I'm now 10 years into this. And um, when I was starting, I just felt like everything had to have everything in it. I, I felt this kind of operatic emotion. I mean, the the first song I ever wrote for the band was like, you know, it had this big choir of singers and all string quartet and all this stuff. Because it just, you know, that's what it felt like. And now there's this kind of liberating feeling too of like, there are just many ways to tell different kinds of stories. Um, and, you know, uh, like I earlier this year, I put out a classical album where it was a singer and a string quartet. And we were doing these kind of haunted texts that I, I worked on with my, my friends, Karen and Carrie. And, you know, that had a whole different thing. And then this album doesn't have to be that this album can be, you know, just talking about a shitty experience that I had, uh, you know, and I think finding the right sort of places for the right kind of storytelling has been an interesting journey through you know through the last few years yeah it's also relatively stripped down like sonically from past records as well you know was that a conscious decision to have to find a way to make the songs more immediate yeah totally it was you know i wasn't because i had been instructed to write these songs at the piano and you know basically like if they worked with me singing and just a piano then, you know, uh, everything was going to be better from there. So what do you mean instructed? Uh, because I, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, I want to write this album, Alan, I have all these thoughts, you know, like talk to me about what we, you know, what, like basically I just was like, Hey, you know, I'm going to do this. And he, and he said, you know, try this, try this thing, you know, we, let's try something different here. And, uh, Alan. I, yeah, Alan did. Yeah. And it was really, really nice because in the past, it kind of went the other way where I would be like, Hey, this is what we're doing here. We're making a concept record about a ghost bird, you know? <laughs> and he'd be like, all right, man, I'll find my way into it. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, whatever you say, man. Yeah. Like, all right, shit, I'll see you on stage kind of thing. And, um, and, uh, this was nice because it's like, okay, like this is going to be obviously my experience and my words, but you know, he was, uh, steering the ship from this, from the beginning a little bit. And that was, uh, took a lot of trust and and in the process of doing that yeah i kept them much more stripped down because um i don't know like it just felt like that that just felt right and so i didn't even really i mean i made some horn charts and i did some arrangement stuff but it was like you know we recorded this in my studio here and that was the first time that i've recorded an album where i didn't feel like i was on the clock financially as well right so um, instead of it being, you know, we have four days to do this whole thing or else we're going to run out of money. It was like, all right, you know, Aki, our guitarist, come on in, like, let's mess around with this, you know, and, uh, really traded it on the fact that I've known these people for 10 years now. You know, it's funny, you were describing this almost as process of kind of going backwards when it comes to the, to the day job thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds to me like you've also kind of backed yourself into 
a far more traditional method of writing rock <laughs> songs. Yeah, well, I hope it's uh, from a from a place of uh, cho- from a place of choice rather than um, when I say backed in, I just mean that that you know you like most people start simple and get more complicated, yeah. and you've gone the other way. Yeah, you know, and like I think that there's actually um, there's something uh really rewarding about doing that because it's it's you know during the pandemic for for some extra money uh alan and i did this like songwriting thing where we you know talked to some of our fans about songwriting it was like a class that we kind of kind of did and in the process of doing that i was shocked at how many opinions i had about just the craft of songwriting um which i had always sort of thought of as like uh, uh that you know the way that i wrote songs was more sort of music first and it was about um you know kind of the uh the arrangements and the tapestry and the sort of the intoxicating quality of of how things work together sonically uh and then i was like no i actually really care about when the chorus hits you know i care about you know what i care about bridges like i or i care about not caring about bridges i actually don't like bridges you know and so i had all these sort of funny things that were sort of codified for me in in the course of talking about it. And I thought like, you know, um, uh, there's something nice about taking the craft really seriously and just trying to build a great house, you know, rather than be like, Ooh, my house has all sorts of weird shit on it. (laughs) So it was fun. It sounds like the process of, I mean, it wasn't like a full on teaching job, but you, you were teaching in a sense was played an important role in the creation of this record. It certainly clarified some, some stuff for me about songwriting. I think where I go from here is an open question. And, you know, I've already thought a little bit about a next record and I think that would be probably you know, I, I wouldn't do the same record again. I think I, you know, bring some things back in. And I think it's important as a songwriter and as a composer both to be constantly trying new things, you know, to, to be codifying your sound and to making, sh- you know, sure that you have a really uh, a unique voice. But at the same time, if you're just going to be in one place, like, uh, I think that's, um, where's the fun in that? So, you know, we'll see where it goes, but this is a fun one to kind of, you know, nuts and bolts. How do you write a song? How do you observe a heartbreak? How do you try to, you know, do something that feels honest and not too melodramatic, even though during a time you're probably feeling kind of that way. How do you avoid the, the navel gazing? And how do you avoid falling into the, the cliches that every single person who's written a breakup album falls into? Or do you have to embrace them to a certain extent? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I try to keep in mind is because the experience of the of, of a listener is actually built into my writing because I have to, my first listeners are my singers and they have to like, like it and relate. I hope that there's a kind of a generosity built into how I write where, you know, even like the lyrics that I'm setting, the lyrics I'm writing, it's like, I want to make sure that they all feel that there's a certain kind of point of entry for them. Um, and that they're not, uh, just like, here's what I had for lunch today. You know, I mean, there are great songwriters who do that, um, who just tell you what they had for lunch today and you just believe them because they sound amazing. And there's something very specific about, uh, the way they observe it, but the the way I try to stay out of the navel gazy thing, I think, is just by constantly, constantly trying to find shared ground between uh, 
me, my singers, uh, and, you know, a sort of an imaginary audience who might be going through something similar. Again, because I'm reading a Philip Glass book right now, and I highlighted something. I can't find the exact quote, but he says something, something that's like very obvious on the on the on the face of it when he says it, but that I hadn't considered that way. But uh, to completely paraphrase him, something along the lines of that art is about looking, and that music is about listening. Yeah, and really, and yeah, and and taking, and I guess really considering like considering how it's consumed is a big part of actually creating that work. Well, it's a, you know, it's a temporal time form. You have to, at the very least, give three minutes of your life to listen to a song, you know? Um, and then usually if you're asking for them to listen to an album, it's, you know, 45 minutes. And if you're asking them to listen to an opera, it's three hours, you know, or whatever. So I think there's a, a awareness um, of that, that, I always carry with me because there's nothing that I dislike more than something that doesn't know when to end um, uh, musically. Uh, and so there's maybe, um, yeah, I guess I just, uh, that, that, that's a, that communal aspect of like music making is what drives my whole thing and my whole desire to make it. And so why, um, why get too, you know, blindersy navel gazy about it? Um, if you're trying to bring people in and find shared ground pop music versus uh, classical music or, or opera um pop music has this built-in generally this built-in time limit to it so it, it seems like it's easier to it's easier to know when to get out of it because it's baked into the process but perhaps it's a lot more difficult to convey all of the things that you want to convey in a three minute song versus a, you know, as you said, a three hour opera. Yeah. I think maybe it's about scale, right? Like, um, uh, like, uh, you know, if I'm going to extrapolate the lessons from making even this album, but a song doesn't have to say everything, you know, I mean, what is it? I think it's a Shostakovich quote or no, it's a Mahler quote. Um, just like that, his symphony, it's like, it must contain everything is I think what he said. Um, which like, you know, cool, man, like good on you. Good. He's good at that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he really is going for it. Um, and you know, I think when I was, when I was a little bit more immature about what I was doing, I think I felt, felt that everything must contain everything, but actually three minutes is a great period of time to give like one smart observation with maybe a little, you know, some kind of a little moment of, you know, whatever, like Alan calls it the calf tattoo line, you know, it's like what, the, the line that you really think about and you remember. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's maybe actually in, in something small like that, there, it can contain the world. It can contain a lot. I mean, songs, there are three minute songs that are some of the most important, um, three minutes, you know, that you can give. Uh, but I, I think it's about, it's, they're more like poems, right? You're looking at one little thing and you're seeing a lot in something small, um, as opposed to an opera where you're trying to say a lot in something big or maybe something simple in something big, you know, some of my favorite operas are, are, are and, and theater pieces are things that, um, you know, you have this big sprawling story and at the end it's like, uh, you know, there's maybe some, it, it all kind of crystallizes in some, in some sort of beautiful little way. It's a calf tattoo moment because that's, you get the quote tattooed on your calf. Is that the idea? 
Yeah, it's the it's the one. You're right. It's like uh, someone comes up to you after the show and shows you the line, and it's you know t- tattooed on their calf. I, I've not heard that, so I assume that's an Allenism. Yeah, that was. A, I mean, I think it's probably a uh, you know it, we do have some pretty intense fans, and I I, I uh, have seen a fair number of things like that. And so we were, I think, at one point we were just talking about how crazy it is to uh, to see the like a line that kind of was maybe tossed off, right? Like, there's a line in one of our songs um in methuselah it's just like this line i i don't think of you when i'm missing you which i remember writing and i was like that's not a good one but i just gotta keep going and then that line kind of you know the context of it uh it carried more weight for for within the song and then i've seen that tattooed on on people and it's uh it's like wow it's so weird to see a small almost like throwaway thing you know become something that's very meaningful and very real to someone so that's kind of nice What's the feeling like the first time you see that somebody has tattooed words that you've written on their body? It's very um, uh, I, humbling is the wrong word because that's such a silly word I find, but it's very um, grounding or something. It's like, whoa, I think it gives you context that these songs aren't yours anymore. Um, and often the person who gets the tattoo or who does their first dance to one of your songs and they're at their wedding what that song means to them doesn't it it's not what it meant to you and actually it doesn't matter um like what it means to them is just as valid um and probably more so because they're the ones living the experience and so i i think there's actually a sort of a undercutting of ego in a way that's kind of nice where you're like wow this thing it meant something to me and then i let it go and i you know and now it means something totally different to you um so there's something cool about that i think uh uh and you know and maybe a little bit um embarrassing for me where i'm like ah shit like if i had come up with a better line it would be a better tattoo (laughs) this is something i talk to people about all the time because it's something that i have like been trying to get better about myself is is accepting the compliment and not having the impulse to say like oh that's the one you like (laughs) that i've done much better that's my worst thing and and like all of a sudden like you're shitting on this thing that just meant so much to that person and i think um actually the experience of performing probably also of of you know uh being in your role currently is like you know with having listeners is actually really destructive to the ability to accept the compliment right because you just stop trusting people pretty quickly uh i you know i i would feel you know um after a year of touring i was just like oh i I, I used to really enjoy talking to people after the show and now i just find myself feeling a little bit alienated because i don't I'm not letting the nice things sink in. Like I'm trying to read into the things that you say that are nice and make them bad. And um, you just lose this kind of trust uh, that anyone is saying anything real to you. And I think that that is um, hard to then come back to your regular life and, uh, you know, uh, turn off. Yeah. I I mean, and it gets back to what we were saying before that music is about listening. Yeah. Yeah. It's the person and, uh, and how they interpret it and the fact that once it's in the world it's not really yours anymore totally yeah and you know and uh and it shouldn't be it it i don't think that that's the role of recorded music i think it's not the role of live music either i think it's like if you're truly committed to the to the community and to the to, or to the i should say if you're committed to the experience of connecting and sharing then you have to share as soon as i leave i just want to come back 
Cause it feels like you are the one thing 